I am Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we speak with notable artists, scholars, writers, and others to get to know the person. Our guest today is the director of the IU Cinema, John Vickers. John, thank you very much for coming. Well, thanks for inviting me. These past year, three years have been remarkable. It's a little over the third anniversary, right? Well, uh, third anniversary of my coming to Indiana yes. University, second anniversary of, of being open. Of being open. Yes. So the third anniversary, you came before the cinema opened. Yes. This has been an incredible time. We've opened up a cinema, which has brought in students, faculty, and townspeople, large audiences. What do you estimate the audiences have been over the past two years? Well, for our first two years, our audience was over 90,000 admissions, uh, which Gosh. we're very proud of. And, and it's continuing. It is, absolutely. Um, I want to know more about you. Okay. What brought you to IU and what you did before coming here? Sure. I know that you lived in Three Oaks in Michigan. Yes. And that there was a family business there. Yes. Vickers Engineering. Yes, that's correct. What kind of engineering? Well, it was actually more of a manufacturing company. However, my father did some engineering as well. He, he started in 1970, and uh, I joined the business in 87. Um, my brothers and I had worked off and on in summers as well, but came back to the business after university in, in 1987. And they were a, considered a job shop for manufacturing, taking on work from many dif- different industries, including the auto industry. And you'd gone to university in Michigan as well. Yes, uh, Michigan State for civil engineering. Oh, you did an engineering degree? I did, yes. So that's quite a leap. Uh, you mean to cinema? Yeah. Uh, well, Not sure. Really, it, 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 no, absolutely, it is. Uh, uh, so let's go over the evolution of this. Okay. You're in Three Oaks, and suddenly you see a movie theater called Lee. Yes. And it's for sale. Correct. Take us from there. In 1993, my wife and I saw uh, our small-town theater go up for sale. It had been closed as a theater for eight or ten years, and it had many different names uh, after Lee as well uh, because it had changed hands a number of times. But within a week of seeing that sign, my wife and I made an offer to and committed to buying the theater. And we had this naive uh, bohemian vision of... Uh, opening this movie theater, showing interesting films, living in the old projection booth, and uh, displaying my wife's art, who uh, she, she was a painter, um, and again, living this interesting lifestyle. Um, by the time we restored the theater two and a half years later and opened in 1996, uh, we had our second child uh, had arrived. And um, so we had two children. The bohemian lifestyle was really no longer realistic, but we still wanted to accomplish what we set out to do. And so we did it kind of as a hobby business on the weekends. Uh, we opened the Vickers Theater. And uh, that's, I guess, where my uh, forthcoming career then uh, began in, in cinema. And that that movie theater had existed since 1913. It did. Actually, 1911, it was titled uh, or called the Fairyland uh, Theater, I believe, and then changed to the Lee Theater in the teens and ran by the Lee family until, I think, 1977. And then again, it changed hands a number of times. What did you have to do to bring that up to 
code or to bring it up to what a movie theater should be? Sure. Um, well, everything was gone, and um, it had been used as storage and office space, and it was pretty much chopped up with uh, rooms, et cetera. So we completely gutted it, but we also wanted to create a, a different feeling in the space. So we we created uh, balconies. Uh, we lofted the ceiling. We had to level the floor out so we could put bistro tables in the back because that was part of our vision. And so we created this really uh, intimate, beautiful boutique theater that uh, has a class and a charm of all its own. Um, it has wood, oak wood flooring and part of it. I mean, it's just really a beautiful space uh, that created an environment that people wanted to come to. And your wife, your wife's Jennifer. She is. And she helped with being an artist with the aesthetics of the theater, I'm sure. Absolutely. So uh, together we designed the space, and uh, together we created and finished the space, including uh, there's some beautiful murals that uh, she she laid, artistic murals in the lobby, uh, based around uh, some Ayn Rand book covers oh, and yeah. um, you know, beautiful uh, vision of uh, Atlas and some other things. You also were involved with the Harbor Arts Festival. Correct. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. Um, well, I, you know, I think we uh, we were kind of filling needs in our community, and and in a small community, you can easily make change. So, uh, us with other friends started a, a small nonprofit called Harbor Arts, and over time, Harbor Arts became um, the funding source for a music in the park series, an opera series, um, a low power FM radio station similar to. Uh, WFHB here in, in Bloomington. So we were able to create some really amazing things through this small arts, arts organization. And being small enough, um, there was myself, Jennifer, and then three others involved. Uh, we were able to make things happen pretty quickly and make decisions quickly. And I, I think we really affected some good change in the community. So you were involved in a movie theater, but you also loved film. Yes. And in fact, in looking at some notes, I see you loved Jaws. Yes. And you watched Jaws as a child. And then how did that grow? I mean, you, you went to Michigan State right. and didn't do anything involving film. No. I, but, you know, I, I think – well, I did see Jaws in our small-town theater when it was the Lee Theater. Yeah. And, uh, and I saw many, many movies. Um, but I think what really made the change for me was at Michigan State, there was a small art theater that had opened uh, called The Odeon. And uh, I was exposed to a lot of different things there that uh, I don't think I would have seen otherwise. And I think that really sparked uh, the interest in uh, foreign language film as well as classic films. And then coming back to Three Oaks, uh, Michigan, whenever I would go to the video stores, I would rent the films. And I became known as the guy who liked the weird movies, um, you know, because I was maybe one of the only ones renting these foreign language films and independent films. Where did the audience come from? That's that's a, a good question, and, and I think there was a real need in the community for this. And, and so we had audience coming from uh, maybe 30 miles in every direction, so South Bend, Indiana, Michigan City, Indiana, as well as St. Joseph, Michigan. But we would also have people drive 60 miles every weekend to see a film. And uh, so we would even get people driving in from Chicago or Kalamazoo or Grand Rapids. So I think we were, again, filling a niche of uh, – screening films that weren't screened in the area, and it really drew from all over. So uh, so I, I think it was it was really important at the time. And um, we would also get audience that was becoming faithful, and they would come no matter what we were screening. They would come because they liked the experience, they liked the environment, they liked the people that they met. And um, so that's what we really prided ourselves on as well, is creating an overall experience uh, 
that was equally important to the film. So over those years, you learned a lot. You had a wealth of experience operationally. Yes. Getting a building in shape, ordering films, running a business. You didn't quite know what you were in for with this bohemian life, right? <laughs> no. Yeah. It's, well, I credit that, Patrick, to uh, I, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur and you know, I, I saw what uh, some efforts, some will and hard work could, you know, could accomplish. And, you know, we went into the theater business completely uh, naive. However, like many things, you can pick things up. And, and so, um, you know, we learned along the way. And um, it, it did take a, a lot of effort to run this uh, weekend non-Bohemian life uh, style business. But uh, it was absolutely worth it. So from Three Oaks. Yes to the De Bartolo Center, this mega building with all of the donors investing in it at, on the Notre Dame campus. That was quite a leap. That was quite a leap. And um, it was also very flattering. I was asked to interview to, for the position of uh, opening the uh, Browning Cinema in the De Bartolo Performing Arts Center. And I, I think I was asked because many faculty from Notre Dame came to our theater in Michigan and uh, folks thought maybe I could handle this. And um, But anyway... To go into this building and, and uh, be asked to possibly partake in, in opening this great uh, uh, cinema uh, was, you know, really a, a neat opportunity. And, and I'll tell you, when I was given the job and after being there for about a month, I, I almost felt guilty about getting paid to do something that was a hobby before for me. And, and it, it, I mean, it's, it's true. And so – but I got to be part of this really amazing team at Notre Dame in this DeBartolo Performing Arts Center, most of whom are still there. And it, it just – it opened me up to this completely uh, different world that uh, I'm so glad I'm part of now. IU advertised this position. You were happy at Notre Dame. Yes. You, you said you didn't take the IU job out of desperation. I didn't. Um, in fact, that's I, a quote. Okay. <laughs> well, I didn't actually apply for the IU job until yeah. I was asked to apply for it, and, yeah. and again, I was very flattered to be asked to, to apply. And no, even after the position was offered, uh, it was a big decision as to whether uh, to come. And, and there, were, I'll tell you, uh, you know, why we decided to come, but. Um, but yes, we still had our theater. I still was at Notre Dame. I, was, I had become the managing director of the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center, and we had so many ties in the community, um, so it was really tough to leave. However, I saw what Indiana University was doing with this facility and what the plans were for, th for the facility, but also the level of commitment and engagement with the faculty. Um, they were all in involved in this process of hiring, but also to further that, um, the administration. So this was a project that the president initiated and the position reported to the provost. So to have that level of commitment, you know, hopefully ensuring the success of this uh, was, was pretty amazing. And, and those are the things, as well as our family falling in love with Bloomington, that uh, really made us make the decision. But also it's something more than that. It was something new that you were going to create from scratch, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, this was an ambitious program spelled out by the president and the provost, and um, it was the opportunity to build something that would hopefully be, you know, become nationally recognized, uh, which is very exciting if you can lead that. 
so yes, absolutely. There's uh, there's the challenge there that I think was exciting. Um, I, I I do tell people that uh, I've had the good fortune of being able to open what I consider three of the most unique cinemas in the Midwest, and and each time they get grander and grander. And I don't think this one could be topped. <laughs> I, I think I become very passionate about the things that I like to do and I'm interested in. And, you know, hopefully that comes across in, in what I'm doing here as well. Let's talk about the cinema a bit. Sure. So it's a state-of-the-art movie theater. You've got a 16-millimeter projector, 35-millimeter projector, and you've got two digital projectors. That's Tell correct. us more about this. Sure. Well, the state of the art is changing, as as we all know. And um, so there's a, a major conversion to digital cinema that's taking place and has actually taken place. Uh, I believe between 85 and 90 percent of screens in America have been converted to digital cinema. So the celluloid film projectors uh, are becoming fewer and fewer around the country. This booth is very well equipped. In fact, uh, a representative from THX said that it was the best equipped university cinema in the country. We do have 16 and 35 millimeter film projection as well as 2K and 4K resolution digital cinema projection, including 3D. And then on top of that, we have all of the broadcast quality playback decks that any independent filmmaker might be bringing his or her film on. So we have what we feel is the the means to play any film in its best possible format except for 70 millimeter. So that's the only limitation that we really have. And um, and along with that, um, it's been THX certified mm-hmm. and we have outstanding booth practices and we really pride ourselves on trying to make the experience or the exhibition as, as good or better than anywhere. And um, we've had many filmmakers say that their films have never looked as good as they did in our theater or sounded. And um, and that's a nice compliment that we like to hear as we're trying to build this reputation. Tell, tell our audience uh, about THX certification, which you received in January 2011. We did. Um, so there are a small number of uh, university cinemas that are THX certified. I think there are about a dozen. Uh, the, the first THX certified cinema in the state of Indiana is was at uh, the DeBartolo uh, Performing Arts Center, the Browning Cinema. We're the second in the entire state of commercial and or non-commercial cinemas. But THX is a, a standard that George Lucas and others founded um, in the 70s, maybe early 80s, uh, to, to develop a, a quality control standard for movie theaters. And it takes into account everything from you know, background noise to viewing angles to brightness of the image on screen to the the quality of the products that go into uh, creating that that uh, uh, that system, and they even uh, get involved on the uh, design stage with architects. So everything from acoustic uh, baffling, uh, but anything that might affect the experience of an audience member, and it it takes a lot to to try to meet their standards and then you also have to pay then for annual certification or testing and so uh it throws us into what i consider an elite class uh, as a starting point but then we take it even further than that it is a special viewing experience not comparable to a mall theater i can assure you well thank you it's the ambience and it's the quality of the image as well and and that's really special yeah, thank you. And and I'm a firm believer of um, you know lasting memories of a film 
take more than just the film. And I think they take the overall experience and place is very much a part of that. Yeah. And and we're we're blessed with this great place. What can you do to enhance, let's say, a film that was made in the early 1900s? Is your equipment going to do something unique with this or is it just going to show the film in its original context? Yes, there's there's very little it will do to enhance other than having optimal say, brightness and focus mm -hmm. and other things. But no, we're reliant on the quality of the material that we're showing. So if the material is damaged or poorly cared for, you know, that's going to come through no matter who's screening the film. The partnership with Sony Electronics, what yes. does that mean? Yes, well, uh, Sony was uh, the integrator for the motion picture contract, so they were the ones who installed all of the equipment that we had. But that, that was only one piece of it. Um, Sony has had a, a relationship with the university here for, I think, a number of years. And so that also meant that there was some uh, benefits in, in the pricing as well. But, but even furthermore, um, we also deal with Sony as a, a, a film company. So we deal with uh, Big Sony as well as uh, Sony uh, Pictures Classics. And, and so we think we've built pretty strong relationships with Sony overall as a, a global corporation. I was looking over the films over the last two years. They range from Lawrence of Arabia, Metropolis, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, incredible array of films. Have they all lived up to what you were hoping for when you wanted to bring them here? Have you had disappointments? Have you had triumphs in terms of these films? Gosh, that's a big question because I think we've shown over 400 titles. So, yes, um, Many triumphs. It's, I'm really pleased to see big audiences come out for uh, some of our classic films that we've shown. So I was, I was excited to see sellout audiences for many of our classic titles. Um, there are many new art house titles that I thought would do much better uh, here than they've done. In fact, give me an example. Recent example: a small Portuguese film titled Taboo, which I thought yes. we would we would get an audience for, or. You know, many of the art house titles, um, Rust and Bone, a recent title, I think, and, and you, you don't never want to compare, but I think the Vickers Theater in a town of 2,000 people would probably have done twice the audience that we did here in Bloomington. And, and so, you know, I think that we have a young program and we're still trying to build our audience, and I, I think we'll continue to build that loyalty with our audience. But uh, some of those things have surprised me, that we haven't done as well with certain new titles uh, than I had hoped to. You know, that's an interesting point. I'd like to pursue it a little further. Sure. We always think that it's a sophisticated community. Yes. Now, in some ways it is, in some ways it's not. Is it because the film was not well known? Is it because the audience is not adventurous? Uh, how do you explain it? Yeah, I would explain it. Um, I, I, I think this is a sophisticated community. I think, I think I would explain it by saying we just haven't reached enough of the community yet. I think that's that's one explanation. The other explanation is, as you know, Patrick, we have an embarrassment of riches here on this campus. Uh, there is so much to do culturally that uh, there are many choices, whereas in a town of 2,000 people, there are sometimes no choices. And so I, I think that... Uh, you know, I think it's a combination of, of the two, that we just haven't reached our full audience yet, and there's just so many conflicting things to do here, and uh, which is wonderful. 
but it's it's you know tougher than to build some of those audiences. Let's break down your audience. Sure. On the one level, you've got people who are faculty members teaching film. Yes. You've got faculty who are writing about a period who might be interested in a film. Sure. You've got general sophisticated faculty who want to see the films. And then you've got an equal array of students. Right. And then you've got public outreach, which is part of your mission. Right. Let's talk about those audiences for a minute, if we may. Well, yes. So we, we do have many different audiences and many different stakeholders here uh, with our program. And I'll tell you what we're trying to target, uh, and that might simplify things a bit. But uh, we're trying to build a student audience of anywhere from 40 to 45, maybe 40 to 50 percent of our total audience to be students, because I think we'll be better serving the university that way. A traditional art house audience has less than 10 percent of a student audience. Yeah. So the the arts, as as we all know, um, arts audiences are an aging audience uh, for certain arts, and um, art house cinema is is the same. And so for us to have currently, we have about 38 percent student audience, which we're very proud of. That's really uncommon in an art house world. But we want to even grow that yeah. to you know 40 to 50 percent. As far as reaching out to the community, absolutely. We want to go beyond campus, and every university has a bit of a town and a gown issue to work through. And, you know, I think cinema is such an accessible art form that, you know, we can break that uh, maybe easy, more easily than most. And so I think we do, but I think we need to continue to reach out into the community. A couple things that I'm, I'm really proud of is when we had a Latino film festival and conference members of our planning committee went out into the community, into restaurants, into the Latino community, and really tried to make people aware of what we're doing and what we're bringing. So we need, you know, many more efforts like that. Yeah. Uh, but we do try to make those uh, at certain times. And uh, so we're trying to build our audience broadly. And, and it's a, a marketer's nightmare uh, because we don't have targets. Um, but we're, we're really trying to affect, I would say, the entire community. How do you explain the number of students who lined up, for example, to see Lawrence of Arabia? It's a film from another time and another place. And yet when I went to see it, it was clear that young people were appreciating it. Yeah, I, I think there's an interest certainly in, in films, especially films with some recognition like Lawrence of Arabia. And, you know, maybe that we were touting it as a, a second anniversary had a little benefit as well, yeah. but uh, and then it was newly restored. That was the um, the plus as well for the correct, yeah. yeah. So it had just played at Cannes, um, the new restoration. So I think there were a number of things kind of going for that particular screening. Um, but it is great to see students showing up. John, I think this is a point where we need some music. Okay, who do you want to select for your first piece? Well, the first, I would like to uh, select a, a piece from uh, composer, Estonian composer Arvo Pert. And uh, the, the piece is uh, Spiegel and Spiegel. And uh, this piece, uh, I'll just set up briefly. Between 2001 and 2003, I heard this piece come into a number of different films. And the two that haunted me the most was Gus Van Zandt's Jerry and then another film called Touching the Void. And in each case, uh, the, the piece of music came around the time the protagonist looked like he was going to die and um and but the 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 piece of music then showed up in a Jean-Luc Godard film in the uh, praise that's of love the, the one connection as well yeah and then a Tom Tickwer film uh, yeah. titled heaven so anyway yeah. 
all of those have made me really appreciate this piece over the years, and it still haunts me when I hear it. This is Profiles, and I'm Patrick O'Mara, and our guest today is John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. John, let's talk about selection process. Okay. Gosh, you've had a lot of films. We have. You obviously have all of the operational aspect. You've got to order them. You've got to get them. Right. You've got to pay for them. But then they've got to be chosen. Right. And you don't do that alone. I don't. No, no. We have a pretty complex scheduling uh, process. And and so let me step back and say that I consider our program maybe one of the most unique in the country, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, we devote uh, up to 50% of our program to be programmed in partnership with academic departments on campus. So what that means is uh, we take in requests throughout the, the year, and we actually have a program advisory board to help manage that half of our program. And what we did was reached out to the deans of all 14 of the schools on campus and had them appoint somebody to be part of our uh, our board. Uh, this board meets and then decides what fits on that side of the, pro- the program. And then I work with those partners to really further develop that. The other part of the program, we have, as I mentioned earlier, many stakeholders, but also many initiatives that we're trying to accomplish. So we're trying to be Bloomington's art house. We're also trying to build a film festival experience or feeling to our program on an ongoing, regular basis. We're trying to build a national reputation, and we're trying to be academically relevant. So all of those things kind of play in to the program. But we have certain things that we've started as series that we'd like to continue, like a Cine Kids program or a new restoration program or director's retrospective. So all of those things uh, feed into the building of that second half of the program. But what really kind of drives it, Patrick, is the filmmakers that accept our invitations to yes. come first. So we, we do invite a lot of filmmakers each semester knowing that probably 75% of them are going to say no. And we've had many rejections, um, but we continue to try. But we continue to reach out to filmmakers that we think are interesting to build a program around. And we try to cover the best we can the gamut of the filmmaking process. So whether it's directors, producers, production designers, uh, screenwriters, we're trying to cover a broad array for the students that are studying film here. Uh, But then also we're trying to cover um, 
make sure that there are enough voices, enough female voices, enough African-American voices. And, and so we're trying to really be thoughtful about the selection of those filmmakers. It's an incredible balancing act when you think of it. It, it is a balancing no. act. And, and I, I don't use the, the word puzzle lightly. It is a puzzle to put together. Mm. And um, because we have many, again, stakeholders that we have to try to make sure our schedule meets their schedule. So it's, it's quite a process. Um, but we're very proud of, of how it turns out. It's a balance between classics and innovation, new yes. films, documentaries, yes, and what kind of audience you'll get for a documentary, and films that a particular instructor might want. And so your committee meets. Our committee meets uh, for the academic side of it, yes. and and we we meet. Uh, well, we met in February for the fall program. So we made far in advance so we can build this program and, and publish uh, like our book like we do. So, yes, the committee is, is very, very useful. And, and we have a great committee that uh, we've had since the opening. And um, I don't think we could handle the academic side of the program without them. How do you connect with, say, the holdings in the Delhi Library or the large film holdings at IU. Is there any relationship? There is, absolutely. Um, we do a series every semester that honors the David Bradley Collection, which yeah. is part of the Lilly Library, and the, the overall IU Library's film archive. We also, as we can, dig into those archives uh, with select screenings. And um, so we, we, we find opportunities. We probably don't um, highlight them enough but we're always open to new ideas um, and ways to do that. Um, often those programs come to us. Somebody will suggest a program that dips into those, uh, those archives. I will say, though, that uh, we have a wonderful uh, symposium coming where IU is going to play a very big part of, part of it. And, um, and it's the Orphan Film Symposium, which is held, has tra- traditionally been held every other year in NYU and other locations. But we've been asked to be uh, the Midwest uh, Symposium oh. in September. And uh, it, it's a great honor. And we really get to then show off what's in these holdings at the symposium that will be attended by uh, national scholars. Oh, that's so very exciting. It is very exciting. Uh, we're very much looking forward to that. You also collaborate with the School of Music and Composers. We do. Tell us a bit about some of those collaborations. I've, I've been to some of the films where you've special music composed or performed. This, this is something that I, I hold really dear. And, and in fact, um, the one that I'll mention first is, is one of the things that I think I'm most proud of in my 20 years of exhibiting. And so we were able to uh, hold a competition for composition students in the Jacobs School of Music to compose uh, to a five-minute clip of a silent film. It was a 1922 David Copperfield. We chose a winner. Uh, it was film faculty as well as music faculty and we commissioned a student to write a score for 18 instruments for a 75-minute uh, silent film. And uh, the winner was Ari Fisher. And yes, he I com- was there for. He completed that score, and we pr- uh, premiered his score with the silent film from the Library of Congress, I think, three days before Charles Dickens's 200th birthday. Yeah. And it, for me, I, I was so proud that uh, not only we could provide this opportunity to the composer, uh, but also to the audience because it was a it was a wonderful I thought it was a wonderful experience for the audience as yes. well, and and so that was you know one collaboration. But we've also had student orchestras for other films that we've um, presented in the cinema, and then a couple of years ago we started with um, 
faculty in the Department of Communication and Culture, as well as uh, composition faculty, this collaborative project where film students and music composition students get together and establish a project from the beginning together. So uh, composition students and film students to create this collaboration, which we then premiere live with an orchestra again, and it's called Double Exposure. And uh, uh, through the the valiant efforts of uh, Susan Suzanne Schwibbs in CMCL and John Gibson in the School of Music, uh, they've been able to put this together. And it's not part of a class, so it's all extracurricular in a way, but they're creating some really great work that we've premiered as well. So so really some, some neat opportunities. And, uh, and then there's Halloween. And then there's Halloween. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's your dramatic moment when you bring in all of the vampires. Yes, yes. Um, we, we actually were planning something really special this Halloween. Are you? Speaking of vampires. So yeah. we're, we're going to do uh, Murnau's Nosferatu oh, from I know 22 film, yeah. uh, with uh, some non-traditional accompaniment, yeah. uh, which we're excited about. And then what about the rider? The writer, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, the writer film series is a long-established film series. They've been presenting films in Bloomington for 30 years. And uh, we've partnered with Peter Lapalato and the writer. Uh, and that was one of our first partnerships to uh, have the writer help present our International Art House series. And and I think we have a really great partnership in uh, – I won't go into details, but then we also then get exposure in their magazine, the writer magazine, uh, every month. So we have a couple pages of ads to promote our series in their magazine. So uh, I think we've established a, a great partnership. Peter is a great partner, and uh, we're very proud of that. I'm Patrick O'Mara. This is Profiles. And our guest today is John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema. John, I want to talk about some of the really interesting visitors okay. that we've had. I want to know some of the background, but I also want to know about how you handled them. Let's start with one that I was really intrigued with. Okay. Werner Herzog. Yes. What a great coup to bring him here. It First was. First of all, he's in a very active phase still of his career. He is. I, I don't think he'll, he will ever stop making films unless he has to. I've been in touch with Herzog over the years and have tried to invite him in the past. And I think what uh, what helped us succeed this time was um, we applied for a patent lectureship. And the William T. Patton Foundation offers what is considered the most esteemed uh, lectureship on the uni- Indiana University campus. And uh, the committee accepted that uh, that nomination. And um, approaching Herzog with this, uh, with the thought of giving two academic lectures, as well as being here for a week, but then also being able to offer a nice uh, honorarium, uh, I think is what kind of sealed the deal. I think it challenged him intellectually. I think it was something interesting for him to consider, and um, and I think it made it worth his while. And, and so we were successful in bringing him here. And the series of events, I think, were well-planned, and the thing that we didn't plan for was the, as he put it, the intensity of the audience. People came out, and uh, we were very pleasantly surprised that they came out in the numbers they did. Uh, for the second lecture, I think we had around 1,100 people attending. It was jammed. It was jammed. And, and so you had to move it to the auditorium. We did. Uh, the first venue sat about 500. And you turned people away. We turned people away. So the next uh, lecture, two nights later, we moved to the auditorium. And 
I think it was a great series event of events. I think we maybe worked him too hard. Uh, we had a lot of events for him, but he was a good sport and he was gracious all, all, you know, all along. And I think he really engaged students, faculty, community members. He, uh, uh, he has the power to do that. You know, it's not simply because he was a, recipi- a recipient of the Cannes Festival Award or the Venice Festival, Emmys, Cesars, other awards. But I am amazed because as even speaking to some younger members in my own family, mm-hmm. and they were interested in film, and they said, gee, you're going to have Werner Herzog here. So you attracted an amazing younger audience for his visit. Yeah, I, I don't know why he resonates well with young people, but I think he does. And I think some of his newer films uh, do that pretty well. But I, th- I think everybody's intrigued by his his perseverance. And and if anybody that uh, knows Fitzcarraldo knows the story behind Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think he has this kind of larger than life uh, the, the, image. The opera house Correct. in the Amazon area. Correct. And, and Dragging the boat up a hill. Which is incredible. And, and you know, it's a metaphor as well as, yeah. it, you know, it's something that really he did in real life. And, and so, you know, I think anybody – that knows any bit about his work knows him as kind of a legend in that way. And um, and I think <laughs> hearing him in person, he, he clearly resonates that as well. And then there's the most – one of the recent films in 3D. Yes. How do you fit that into the works? Well, I think um, that's actually, Patrick, pretty easy to fit into the works. Um, that was the very first uh, 3D documentary that was released in the States. Um, it's released by a, a company that handles art house films, IFC Films. Yeah. And we didn't have to justify it, but we topped it off by having the president of IFC Films here to have a premiere, actually. We screened it before it opened uh, in theaters with uh, Jonathan Searing of IFC. Um, so, but it wasn't a tough sell at all. And then we followed it up with the second 3D documentary, Pina, uh, about a year later. We did something special. We digitized some of the movies, right? We did. Yes, I'm very proud of that. Um, through the Advanced Visualization Lab here on campus, they have the software to create what's called a digital cinema package or a DCP. And a DCP is it's the form or format that films are screened on the 85 to 90 percent of the screens that have been converted to digital cinema in the country. And Herzog Film Production had just restored for a Blu-ray release in Europe the six Kinski films. And we were screening three of them here when uh, he was visiting, and we offered to create DCPs so then he could do a theatrical release of those films. Wonderful. And they were ecstatic. Yeah. And and they took us up on it, and they were very appreciative. And now... Um, Hopefully, when those are screened, somehow IU's name will be somewhat attached to those. Well, I hope we can bring him back sometime. I think we can. Yeah. I think we can. I would, it's very impressionistic on my part. I talk about some of the other films that I've seen and enjoyed. Um, Alison Clayman, for example. Yes. I Weigh Weigh. That was quite an experience to have her there and to see that film. And, and it was so timely because the film was being shown nationally as she was here. Correct. Tell me about her. And Yeah, I, I can offer very little, Patrick, because, I, of course, I made all of the arrangements. But I was, I think, at a festival when, um, when she was here. In fact, I think it was in Toronto. So I didn't get to meet Allison. So your experience is more firsthand than mine. But the film is a really remarkable film. No question. I, I, I think uh, regardless of what your politics are, I think uh, seeing an artist uh, – 
put him or herself out there like like he did um, and uh, you know trying to create work that uh, makes people think about their situations is is absolutely important um, and by the way, Ai Weiwei's uh, artwork is being exhibited at the Indianapolis Museum of Art uh, this summer. Oh, great. Which I'm looking forward to. John, another interesting film that I found very provocative, very moving, was Mate One. And you had the director here, John yes. Sayles. Yes. So um, we, we were fortunate to bring John Sayles here, who's considered maybe one of the you know leading independent filmmakers over the years. And... Um, if you're screening a retrospective of Sales' work of any size, uh, Meituan has to fit in there. And, and Meituan is uh, uh, a great look at uh, class structure, class struggles, as well as labor uh, struggles. And um, and I, I think that, uh, I don't know, that film will never go out of style or relevance. It's always going to be important. I liked very much... The Memories of Grey Gardens, yes, which I thought is a spectacular film. But to have Albert Maisley here, yes, wasn't that a special occasion? It, it was, it was. And I, I love, you know, that, that film has been challenged over the years of uh, knowing the limits of, uh, of being objective and, yeah. and, you know, capturing without exploiting. And um, I liked that Albert Maisels was uh, challenged by an audience member after the film. And and he very much felt that he had respect and actually love for the, the subjects. And yeah. whereas, you know, I think it's, it, it is nice to hear those things firsthand because he was he was doing the film out of according to him, out of respect, you know, for the subjects and was not trying to exploit any situation. Um, so you're right. I, I think having those experiences with the filmmakers means a lot. It helps you maybe further your understanding of the of the art. And, um, you know, some filmmakers feel like they shouldn't have to explain their work. But I, I think it, it is great to be able to ask questions uh, when you can. And then there was Claire Denis. Claire Denis, Yes. Very interesting French woman director. Yes. And in fact, I think I still consider her one of the most important uh, living female filmmakers. And um, we were able to show a number of her pieces. That, uh, let me mention, is um, a visit that we initiated, but it had a, a four-stop tour. And that's another way for us to build our reputation is to try to build some of these tours. So we worked with the French Embassy and arranged four stops at the Walker Art Center uh, as well as the... Uh, uh, Emory University and University of Notre Dame. So, uh, as we try to build our reputation, sharing programs yeah, that's like this—a very good way of handling it. it, it I think it's very important. Yeah. Yes. Just a couple of other thoughts, James Atchison. Yes. The Last Emperor. Yeah, yeah. And of course, so topical with Spider-Man. Tell us about him and what he does and about his visit. Yes. So we had a costume designer named James Atchison who had won three Academy Awards for costume design. And uh, one of those was for the film uh, The Last Emperor. The other was for Dangerous Liaisons. And the third was a film uh, titled Restoration. But so he has a classic uh, design element that you know many of us of my generation and, and yours would appreciate, but then he also is relevant to a younger audience because he designed costumes for the Spider-Man films. Yeah. And and then even leading up to that, or leading up beyond that, is uh, he designed for the new Superman movie, yes. Man of Steel. So we thought it was a great time to present it's James Atchison here, here. Um, and, and talk about his work. And then Peter Bogdanovich. 
connected with the Lilly Library, I gather. Yes. Uh, so Peter Bogdanovich's papers are with the Lilly Library. So there's been a, a longstanding relationship with the university. I think he was interested in the university because he's uh, uh, he's written on John Ford and Orson Welles, of yeah. course, and and so and made films. So there's a connection there. But uh, Peter Bogdanovich was here for our opening activities of the IU Cinema and was given an honorary uh, doctorate yes. from President Michael McRobbie. Yeah. So, uh, Who's been deeply involved, by the way, with a presidential film series each uh, season, right? Yes. I mean, you can't ask for a better advocate for your program than the president of the university. <laughs> who loves film. Who loves film. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, what we're doing with this President's Choice film series is only a yes. small way to uh, try to honor you know, what he's he's helped create here. And I should say he's created here because um, it wouldn't be here, I don't think, at this point if, if he wasn't driving it. I suppose the final one I'd ask about is Michael Oslan. Yes. Batman. Was yeah. there a lot of interest? There was, uh, of course. And, and Michael is uh, a great advocate for um, continuing to do good work here in film production and even, you know, helping prepare students for a career in the industry. And and so Michael uh, Uslin is the uh, producer of the Batman franchise, and um, he has a lot of relevance uh, here on this campus, but also in, in Hollywood. And it's great to have him back whenever we do. He's, he's, he's really, uh, he's an advocate for the cinema, but also for further programs in, in film production. So John, where's it all going? You know, cinema, you once said, is the dominant art form of the 20th century. You want to find ways, one of the dominant art forms. Yes. And you've been great in getting our students to be exposed to this in ideal conditions. What's going to happen with students? You know, I go to commercial cinemas, Mm -hmm. and first of all, I'm devastated by the endless trailers that I have to sit through. Sure. And young people are going to these movies that are Terminator or whatever – they're going to be watching movies on iPhones. What's going to happen? Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a big question, and um, you know, I think if you make the experience uh, exciting and relevant enough, and you can make it so it's accessible, so you're not paying fifteen or twenty dollars a ticket, but if you can make it accessible and exciting and something different than watching at home or on your phone, I think the shared experience will live on at least. In some degree, and um, that's that's why I think university cinemas and, and cinemas that are endowed or um, are subsidized by a university or a museum or others are fortunate, but also very important because we can screen things that are maybe going to be less commercially viable, but equally important as an art form. I, I truly feel the shared experience in a cinema is going to last. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it, no. You know, I, I hope I'm not wrong, <laughs> but no. I, I think it's going to continue. I think it's going to continue. I do, I do. John, what do you want to go out on? What sort of music? Well, let's let's play, if, if you don't mind, uh, something that's dear to me, and I've considered this film uh, maybe my favorite film of all time, and it's uh, the, the overture or the opening theme to Lawrence of Arabia. This is, uh, for me, again, it's an inspiring piece of music uh, for what I consider a grand film. Great. We've been speaking today with IU Cinema Director John Vickers. John, this has been a great interview. Thank you for joining us. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles, and thank you all for listening. 
The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2013. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.